Good morning. morning. That's better. It's good to see all of you. Good to have all of you who have joined us online this morning. We are grateful uh, for all of you being in attendance with us this morning and thankful to be here. And let me just say, I'm grateful to be back in this pulpit, but with people looking back at me. That is a lot. Last week, as you know, we, we felt like we needed to call an audible at the last minute. And I came and I preached on Saturday to a completely empty building. And that's weird. Uh, it's just weird. And this is not weird, though. This is good. And I am grateful that all of you are here. And I'm grateful for all of you who have joined us online this morning. Thank you for coming and being with us and for joining us together. If I look a little weathered today or if my eyes look a little bit red uh, and if I, if I seem a little sad, then that's okay. Um, you can just pray for me like, and pray for my family because like others, many of you who are some of you in this room right now and others of you who have done this before, you know what happened yesterday as Caroline and I took our eldest daughter and deposited her 37 miles away on a college campus and we took stuff and we assembled it in her room. And Presley begins her freshman year at college in just a few days. And so Ted was just a little off this morning. And he came and quickly apologized. He said, I just announced up there his entire family's here. Well, Presley's not. <laughs> she is in Athens and that is where we have relocated her to. And in the process of all of that that occurred yesterday, two lessons, two things dawned on me and really were reaffirmed to me as we made our way, Caroline and I did, back uh, to our home. And, and that, is, that is this, two, two abundantly clear messages. Number one, to fight against the clock and to try to stop time is both pointless and useless. Uh, you can try to halt it. You can try to slow it down. But that's not the way it works. Babies turn into toddlers. Toddlers turn into elementary age kids. They turn into teenagers who, if you let them live, will ultimately turn into adults. <laughs> the second thing that you learn is this. You can't stop time. So the only proper approach then is even in a world that is as crazy as ours is right now and is upside down as our world is right now. Even in such a world as that, the only thing that you can do, the only proper approach is to submit to the Lord and honor Him in all of your ways. Specifically in this case, to submit to Him by how you raise your kids, raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, trusting that He is going to do what He is going to do in their lives. And it's also acknowledging something that's incredibly important and that is that he is going to take those kids and he is going to continue to mature them and he's going to continue to grow them and he's going to continue to, to, to grow them up and mature them in the faith. And listen, that's what he's been doing ever since the day he gave them to you to begin with. And so it's reminding yourself that the inevitable is coming. It's the right thing to have happen. 
It's a good thing to have happen. It doesn't mean that it's the easy thing to have happen. But when it happens, you can trust that God is still doing what God's already done and what he's always done. And that is take care of your kids. And so those are the two lessons that I've been reminding myself of. And and Caroline's been reminding me of. And I'm just reminding you of them this morning. And I just want you to know you're not charged for that little sermonette. That one's not that one's free to you this morning. But here's what I want you to know. I do think that you'll find echoes, even as Caroline and I did, you'll find echoes of those two things coming from the text that we're going to explore together this morning. So if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the book of Psalms in the second one of those, Psalm 2. And today I want us to continue this new sermon series that we began last week. A, psalm, a series through psalms that I have entitled Songs from the Heart. Last week, we looked at Psalm 1. And I, I made the case last week that Psalm 1 is the introductory psalm. It is the, it's the gateway psalm, as it were. It's the one that introduces us, really, to, to many of the themes that will continue to recur throughout our study of the psalms. It introduces us to, to the wicked man and to the righteous man. It, it, it introduces us to the two ways of living and the two ultimate destinies that accompany that. Many, however, though, would say that Psalm 2 is also introductory in its nature. In fact, some would even say that Psalm 2 needs to be read right along with Psalm 1 and that together they come to form the introduction to all of the rest of the Psalms. I would say there are some interesting similarities and parallels that exist between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You can see them there. Psalm 1 begins with the very first word talking about who is blessed. Well, Psalm 2 ends by talking about who the blessed person is. Um, Psalm 1 talks about the godly man who meditates on the law of the Lord both day and night. While Psalm 2 talks about meditation, it talks about those who plot. It's the same word in Hebrew. Those who plot, but they're not meditating on God's law. Instead, they are meditating on throwing off God's rule over their lives. And then in Psalm 1, you get the theme of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. But in Psalm 2, there's this contrast between the rebellion of the wicked rulers and the nations of the earth and then God's righteous rule of His Messiah. And so there's, there's some interesting parallels and some similarities between those first two Psalms. I want us to examine Psalm 2 on its own this morning. And, and I believe that as we do, it's going, our, our, our study in it, I hope, will accomplish two Two main goals. The first one is just this. I believe that Psalm 2 will show us the utter futility of fighting against God and against the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus. In fact, I believe it shows us that the only proper response to the Lord Jesus is to submit to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the first goal that I think is accomplished in Psalm 2. The second goal is this. This psalm should be a source of encouragement for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, but perhaps we have become disillusioned. Perhaps we've become a little discouraged, maybe by the current political landscape, maybe the current cultural landscape. Maybe there are some circumstances going on in our lives right now individually that's caused us to become discouraged. I believe this psalm is there for our encouragement because it reminds us that regardless of the noise, regardless of the clamoring that's going on around us, regardless of of how many have abandoned a biblical worldview that is based upon biblical values and biblical truths, we can nevertheless steady ourselves with the knowledge that God is still sovereign. 
And that the Lord Jesus Christ is still firmly enthroned. And that despite how bad things may look, nothing and no one can defeat him. So it's there this morning to, for, to force us to understand, to be encouraged by who God is. And it's also there to encourage us with regard to our response to him in regard to who he is. Now, with that as an introduction, then let's look and read Psalm 2 for ourselves, beginning in verse 1 here, the word of the psalmist. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and we thank you for your word. We ask now that you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit working through the power of your word to open our hearts that we might be able to receive the truths that are here, that we might be able to accurately apply them to our lives, and that your spirit would bring conviction to us. We ask that Lord Jesus would be exalted and magnified through our exposition of this word. That God, that you might accomplish everything you desire to accomplish through it. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know if you noticed it here. This psalm really breaks down into four distinct scenes. And in each scene, we have a different voice that is speaking to us. And, and so that's the way I've divided out the outline for you that I've given to you there in your bulletin. It's an outline that breaks into the four points of the four different voices. And in each one of those, I want to take in turn and examine it, hear what it has to say, and then apply its truth to our hearts. Uh, the first voice that we hear really is a collection of voices. It's The psalmist presents for us a large assortment, if you will, of voices from all across the world, all of which are crying out one single solitary thing that they want to say. So notice with me the first point that I've given you on your outline this morning. The first point is this. What we first see is the voice of the nations who rage and rebel. It's the voice of the nations who rage and rebel. Though we're not told specifically here, I'll point out to you momentarily that I believe that it's clearly David who is the author of this psalm. And it begins with David asking a question. And the question that he asks is one of amazement, really. It's, it's one that, that he asks in utter dismay and shock. He begins in verse 1 by asking, Why do the nations rage 
and the peoples plot a vain thing. It's as if he, as if he asked, what are these guys doing? What, what can they be thinking? How foolish it is for them to, to try to fight with God. That is utter foolishness to try to, to, to take God on as an opponent. So why do they do that? That's the question that David begins this psalm by asking. But that's exactly what's happening. Notice according to verse 2. According to verse 2, David paints for us this picture of like all of the kings and all the rulers and all the authorities of the earth kind of spread out around this big large table. And on that table, if we can imagine, it's the map of the entire world. And all of these rulers are are moving pieces of the puzzle around like, like pieces on a chessboard. And their attempt to try to understand how they can get the edge and, and maybe checkmate their opponent. They're drawing up battle plans. And listen, it's not just one nation that's doing this. No, according to what David tells us, it's all the nations. It's it's all of them all across the world that are engaged in this plan. And it's not just the kings that are engaged in it. Notice also it's kings and the rulers who are involved. And and most commentaries and most scholars will point to the fact that the that this involves both the political rulers and the religious rulers who are joining together in a corporate spirit of rebellion in their process of hatching out a plan. And then, then we look, well then who are they hatching their plan against? Well, the scriptures tell us clearly that these kings and these rulers are conspiring together against the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Now whenever you come across the capital L-O-R-D, all the letters capitalized in the Old Testament, know that right there in the Hebrew is the name of God in the Hebrew language. It's the name Yahweh. So these people are all coming together, hatching their plot against Yahweh, the the covenant God of Israel, the one who created everything according to Genesis 1-1. And so they're coming against God, but not just Him. It's also they're coming against the Lord and his anointed. That word there in the Hebrew is the word Mashiach. And it, it literally translates over into English as the word Messiah. It's coming against his anointed one, coming against the one that God the Father, the Yahweh, has destined to be his anointed one. Now, right here, I just want to take a step back because it would be easy to try to figure out, so, so who is this about? Who, who, is this, who is this psalm talking about? And many purport that this was a, a psalm written about David and about it was always used at the coronation of a king. But I want to point to you that you find that Psalm 2 is one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament. And one of the key places that you see it quoted in the New Testament occurs in Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, if you remember what took place there, this was, this was shortly after Jesus had ascended back to the Father. It was shortly after the Holy Spirit had descended upon all of those that had been gathered in the upper room. And through the Holy Spirit's power had flung them out into the streets of Jerusalem. And, and they, those disciples began to preach in the name of Christ. And they began to do miracles in the name of Christ. And when Acts chapter 4, we find that it is Peter and John who have done these miraculous things. And they have preached this sermon. And 5,000 people had come to know Christ. And as a result of that wonderful thing that had occurred... Well, the Sanhedrin, the rulers and the authorities arrested Peter and they arrested John and they brought them in and they said, look, you will not speak of this man anymore. Why were they scared? Because they had been the ones who had been behind Jesus' arrest. 
They had been the ones who had pursued Him and dogged Him and ultimately had caused Him to be, be hung on a cross. And so now they have all these people that are coming to faith in Him and they're scared, they're worried. And so they tell Peter and they tell John, you will be quiet. You will not speak the name of Jesus. And if you recall, it was Peter who came up at that point and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so the authorities released Peter and John and they went back to their group. And when they got back to their group, they replied to them all the things, told them all the stuff that had happened. And then do you hear what happens? In Acts chapter 4 verse 24, that whole group of disciples were together and then they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David, that's where we learn that David is the author of Psalm 2, who by the mouth of your servant David, according to the Holy Spirit, has said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. You see, we get the best interpretation of who Psalm 2 is talking about in its fullest understanding when we recognize that the New New Testament points back and interprets that psalm in light of Jesus. And so what we know is that Jesus is the focal point of Psalm 2. And what I want you to know is all of the rebelling and all of the the plotting and all the planning of of, of Herod and, and Pilate and the Jewish leaders of his day were understood to be the fulfillment of Psalm 2. But here's what I want you to know. Psalm 2 tells us that such rebellion is not limited to just rulers and kings. No, Rebellion and rage can be found lurking in the heart of every single human being. Every single person, regardless of their status in life, has a rebellious heart that resists the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that is the case is because it's in our very nature to rebel. You might remember that in the Garden of Eden, when everything would have been just as perfect as it could be, it was right there that Adam and Eve both listened to the lies of Satan And in their heart, they determined that that the rule that God had put out, the one thing that He had said, do not eat of this tree, was too restrictive for them. It was too much of 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 a curtailing of their freedom. And so in their very hearts at that moment, they willfully disobeyed God's command and they ate of the tree which He had forbade them to eat of. And what I want you to know is that that rebellious nature has been passed down from generation to generation, to generation, all the way down to each and every single one of us that are in this room this morning. And it is evident in the unified voice of the nations that rage against God as recorded here in Psalm 2 verse 3, where they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is, this is the unifying rally cry of all of humanity. It's this, who is this God? And who does he think he is? Who is he to tell me what's right and wrong? Who is is he to determine what way we should live and what way we should not live? Who is he to author a book and tell us that all of our lives are supposed to be conformed to this? Who is this God who determines things 
apart from me. No, I will be the captain of my own ship. I will determine for me myself what is right and what is wrong. I will do what I want to. I will be free. That is the unifying cry of all the nations, of every single heart in one way, shape, or form lends itself to that voice of rage and rebellion against God. That's the first voice. Notice the second one. The second voice is that of the father who ridicules and rebukes. It's the voice of the father who ridicules and rebukes. David goes on to write in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Now notice with me that here you're painted with a contrast. You've, in the previous verses, you've got all these earthbound kings and, and rulers and, and judges and, and authorities who are conspiring together. And then beginning in verse 4, you get this picture of God sitting in the heavens. It's as if... What we also read in Isaiah chapter 40, when Isaiah writes this concerning the Lord, he said, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He goes on to say this, God brings the princes to nothing and he makes the judges of the earth useless. Now such an understanding really points us back to that first question, right? Back to verse 1. If you consider that, if you consider where God is, and then you consider where all the earthbound puny kings are, then why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples of the earth plot a vain thing? It's vain because it's useless. How can these, as Gerald Wilson has has written, how can these puny earthbound kings of the earth presume to reject and resist the rightful authority of the Creator God who sits enthroned in heaven and over all the earth? Why? Notice also the posture of of. The Lord here, he is, he is described by David as being seated on his throne. You know, he doesn't do what I do. I'll give you a little insight. Caroline knows this. I think my, the rest of my family probably know it. If something's bothering me, I tend to pace. And so if I get on a phone call particularly, I love the near earbuds, by the way, the little, the, the, the wireless ones. They, they're wonderful but they exacerbate my issue. That means that I can lay my phone down somewhere and I just go to walking and I pace everywhere. And, I, and you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't pace. He's not wringing his hands. He's not biting his fingernails. He's not concerned pulling his hair out. Oh my goodness, what is going on down there? What am I going to do? These people are rising up against me. Well, how am I going to handle it? God doesn't pace. God sits on his throne. I love the way James Johnson has put it. He says this uprising on earth doesn't threaten him in the least. In fact, God doesn't even bother to stand up. Instead, what does he do? He laughs. Now listen, God doesn't find it amusing when humanity raises its voice of rage and rebellion against him. That's not the type of laughter that we see here. Instead, it is a, it is a laughter that comes when one witnesses something that is so utterly foolish 
and preposterous as this rebellion is. As one has insinuated, a flea has a better shot at defeating an elephant than mankind does at shooting a rocket and destroying the throne of God. Once again, we go back to that first question of the first verse. Why then? Why? If that's the case, why are the nations raging? Why are they coming up against God? Wilson puts it this way. He says, God's power is so great and his position so secure that he need not take any coalition of human powers as serious threats to his rule. On the other hand, as all of humanity will learn, we must take what God says very seriously. And what does he say? Well, notice what he says there in verse 6. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, I have to be honest with you, when I got to that point of the text studying it this week, it kind of made me scratch my head a little bit. And I'm going, this seems a little out of, it seems a little out of place. Because if it were me, and I were God, and I had this uprising of people who were rebelling against me, the first thing that I would say is, this is what's about to happen. I'm about to pop you right in the mouth. I'm going to come down there and show you really who's boss. That's what's about to take place. God does not stop. Start there. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't get there, but that's not where he starts. God does not begin by saying what he will do. Yahweh begins by saying what he's already done. He starts with a decreed fact. He starts by declaring, this is what has already happened. I have installed my anointed one as king. Now, this is not something that would occur in the future. It was something that has already occurred in the past. And as a result of what he has already done, then everything else kind of flows from there. Because Jesus Christ is his anointed one, then everything else that happens in this psalm comes as a result of that decreed fact. And the implication of that is crucial. Because notice this, God is not pleading with humanity to make his son the king. He's not wringing his hands going, oh, I wish somehow or another that they could understand that he's their king and please make him king. Please install him. on." That is not God's posture at all. Rather unequivocally, he is stating that Christ is king already. In other words, Jesus is not one option on a long menu of options that you can choose from hoping that God comes out on the winning side. No, that's not the way that it's presented God the Father Almighty who created the earth and everything in it who sits encircled above the earth in heaven has established His throne and He has established His chosen one, the Lord Jesus Christ, to sit upon it. He is, he is the only begotten sovereign of the Father. Charles Spurgeon has put it this way, God's anointed is appointed and He will not be disappointed. And notice this, God's declaration of, his, of the installation of Christ on the throne is nothing less than a rebuke of every single person, be they a king, be they a ruler, be they a housewife, be they a grandfather, be they a student. Every person who shakes their fist in the air toward the sovereign God and says, you will not rule over me, God's decree says, yes, I will. So here we've heard the voice of the nations who rage and rebel. We've heard the voice of the Father who ridicules and rebukes. 
Notice the next voice we hear. The third point on your outline is this. It's the voice of the Son who reigns and rules. It's the voice of the Son who reigns and rules. Verses 7 through 9, we we hear from the Lord's anointed Himself. He's the one who who begins to add His voice in. And He he says, look, I'm going to tell you exactly what Yahweh has decreed and said to me. I'm going to repeat it for you so that you know. And so this is the, the Lord's anointed who begins to speak here. It's the Son, and he says, I will, he says, God says this, I will declare the decree, the Lord Yahweh has said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, I point out once again the sovereign nature of this. This is a decree from God himself. This is not a, a suggestion. This is not a, this is not a plan that he might put in place. This is not a prediction of something. No, this is a decree. This is a settled fact of what he has said is going to occur and has already occurred. It is a sealed, resolute fact that has been established. Furthermore, as the New Testament goes on to confirm, it's only Jesus who could fit this role. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews begins the book of Hebrews with these words. He said, God, who at various times and in various ways has spoken in times past by the fathers and the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom... He has appointed heir of all things through whom he made also all the worlds. And being the brightness of this glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much greater and better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, And then the writer of Hebrews says this, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? You know what the answer to that is? He never said it to any of those angels. Why? Because it was reserved for his son. Jesus Christ, begotten of the Father, not created, of one substance with the Father, God of very God. That is why the angels are so much lower than Christ and it's why they bow to Him. He does not bow to them. It's why why Jesus could tell His disciples, look, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Why? Because He's begotten of the Father, of the same substance. He is God, a very God. And Jesus declares here his identity. But he also declares his destiny. In verse 8, as the divinely appointed one, Jesus goes on to quote the Father who says this, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. If you want to know one of the reasons why I believe in Matthew 28 verse 19, we get the, the commission of Christ to go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's because the inheritance that God has already promised to him, that it will come from all the nations. So why would he not send his disciples into the world proclaiming the good news that would go to them? And here's the irony of this entire thing. God has promised the nations He has given it to His Son as His inheritance, and yet the nations are shaking their fist in the face of God, saying, we will not have you be our king. And Jesus says, it's already done. What all that tells us is that the Lord Jesus reigns. He is the sovereign king of all. And though, as this psalm makes clear, not all bow before Him as king, the indisputable fact is that one day all of that will change. As my 
probably favorite verse in the Bible says, Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And to that end, the Lord's anointed declares his rule, his rule over all the nations. The son continues to, to quote God the Father's decree to him here. In verse 9, he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now we get to that part that I thought we were going to get to to begin with. Now we find out what's going to happen. Look, Jesus is king. I have set him on my throne. And Jesus says, And one day, all of you who continue to resist me, I will come with a rod of iron and I will break the vessels like they were pottery. You know, I mentioned earlier how everything that happens in the rest of this comes as a result of of Jesus being installed. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the one to whom all of us will one day bow. And what he says here is just as it said in Revelation 19, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This, this is the Son, the Anointed One of God the Father. And I want you to consider just the imagery of that that's there. Can you just imagine a piece of pottery ever being able to stand a chance against an iron rod being struck against it? Has there ever been a piece of pottery that could withstand an iron rod being crushed upon it? Of course not. It would shatter into a tiny, tiny pieces. And that brings me back to that verse one again. In light of that, then why do the nations rage? Why do they imagine vain things? If that's what the future holds, why? Why would you continue to push against God and against the the reign of His anointed one? That brings us to the last voice that we hear in our text today. We've heard the voice of the nations who rage and rebel, the voice of the Father who ridicules and rebukes, the voice of the Son who reigns and rules, and then finally, the fourth voice is that of the Spirit who warns of a reverent response. The Spirit who warns of a reverent response. Now, I say it's the Spirit here because back in Acts chapter 4 that I quoted for you earlier, verses 25 and 26, many translations make it very clear that though it was David who who spoke, who wrote Psalm 2, they make it very clear that he did so by the Holy Spirit. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit that David wrote Psalm 2. And the rest of Scripture agrees with that. As you well know, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. Peter even goes on to tell us in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, we know that it's the Spirit who speaks here because it's the work of the Spirit to lift Christ It's the work of the Spirit to draw men, women, boys, and girls everywhere to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus and to point people everywhere to Christ. And that's precisely what happens in this verse. Notice how the Spirit does it. He does it through a gentle but firm warning. 
Now, Jesus has just spoken. The anointed one has just spoken and says, the day coming when the iron rod is going to crush the pottery and going to crush the pieces of clay. Here, the Holy Spirit, though, moves to the next logical conclusion. And He does so with a firm but very gentle warning. He says, now therefore, verse 10, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you rulers of the earth. Do you, you see how the Spirit begins to work? It works off of that which has been revealed, which is absolutely true, which will come about. And as a result of that, He comes and says, now, in light of that, be wise. Stop treading down the path that you're on. Stop heading down the path that will ultimately lead you to destruction, to having that iron rod come down and crush you. Stop going that way. Instead, be wise. Be instructed. And do this. Serve the Lord with fear. In other words, submit to Him out of an understanding of His authority over your life. And then, after you do that, then rejoice with trembling. Now, honestly, I had to scratch my head a little bit. Rejoice with trembling. So there's a, there's a joy that we are to have that is accompanied by fear. You see that? Rejoice with trembling. And that, that may cause a little bit of angst. Well, wait a minute, what does that mean? How am I to rejoice but also tremble? I read this, this illustration by, by Walt Chantry, and I want to share it with you. It, it talks about a man who was on a 200-foot tower and he was working there when a gust of wind came by and knocked him loose and when he fell he instinctively grabbed a crossbar on that tower and there he hung suspended between the sky and earth with sudden death beneath him and all he could do was work his way inch by inch slowly down that crossbar until he finally after much effort got down to the earth and he lay there on the earth and Chantry said this he alternated between laughing and crying. Why? He laughed because he knew his life was saved. He cried because he knew just how close he had come to death. Brothers and sisters, if we really understand the weight of our sin and the depths of our depravity and we know exactly what we deserve, if these words are true in this scripture that teach us that all of us are deserving of death, then we know that we have hung there by the thread of a spider's web. But that God in His mercy and in His grace has saved us. And so we alternate between laughing and rejoicing at what God has done and weeping, recognizing that all we deserve is hell and justice and punishment. So, you understand the depths of that there and the Spirit calling them to, to be wise. And then notice what He says, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and then kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, to, to pay homage to Him, to, to humble yourself before Him, to acknowledge his, his authority over your life by submitting to Him in glad service and willing obedience. And listen, that is the kind of reverent response that the Spirit calls each and every person in this room and in this world too. And then the psalm concludes this way by telling us that the ones who are blessed are those who put their trust in Him. Those who take refuge in Him. Those who decide that they're no longer going to fight against Him and try to throw off His chains and throw off His bonds. No, they're going to submit to Him. Those are the ones who are blessed. 
And it is that understanding then that's coupled with everything else that we learned this morning that brings me to my sermon in a sentence today, which is this. Because every single one of us are by nature defiant rebels against God, he has powerfully and decisively set his son on the throne to end that rebellion. And he has sent his spirit to call all rebels everywhere to repent and find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ or suffer his eternal wrath. Now here's here's the thing. I want to give two points of application and we're done. If that's true, and I have spent the bulk of my time this morning trying to create and make you understand that that's the message of Psalm 2. If that's the message of Psalm 2, then what by necessity must we derive from that? What, what does Psalm 2 then press upon us if that's true? And this is what I would say to you. The first thing is this. It forces us to consider just how futile and foolish it is to fight with God. It is utterly foolish to shake your fist in the face of Almighty God and say, you will not rule over me. If you are not a Christian today, if you have never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then let me ask you in the words of the psalmist, why? Why do you continue to rage? Why do you continue to rebel against the one who will rule over you? Why would you continue to go down a path when the Scriptures reveal to you that the only end of that path is your eternal punishment? Why do you rage and plot vain things? Why, when the Spirit testifies that every soul who is by sin oppressed may find mercy in the Lord and He will surely give you rest if you will trust in His Word and place your faith. In Jesus Christ. Why? If you remain apart from Christ this morning, if you steadfastly refuse to submit to Him and to respond to His grace and mercy with a reverent heart, why? All that awaits you is destruction when everything else that awaits you is blessing. Blessed are those who take their refuge in Him. That's the first. The last is this. If you have, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you have pressed, my words won't come, if you have placed your faith in Him, then, then look, you can look around the world around you and see all the things that are going wrong and you can recognize that the world continues to throw off their bonds and to throw off the restraints and to continue to dismiss this as it's an antiquated book that doesn't need to be paid attention to and that Christians are nothing but just a bunch of narrow-minded, bigoted people. You can, you can hear all that, but you can recognize and be encouraged to know that God is still on His throne. He still sovereignly rules over everything. Jesus Christ is still Lord and He always will be. He always has been. And everything that is happening in our world around us, though it may create disillusionment in us, though it may cause us sometimes to fret, though you may be going through difficulties in your own life, you can be encouraged knowing that God is still sovereign and Jesus Christ is still Lord. Our confidence, listen brothers and sisters, is not in our circumstances. It never has been. It never will be. 
Our confidence is in the Lord himself. He is the one in whom we take refuge. And as such, we can know based upon the words of this psalm that we are truly blessed if we have placed our faith in him. It is my prayer that as we continue to think on these words and as we continue to chew and meditate on the law, both day and night, as Psalm 1 tells us, that as we chew on these words, as we think about them, that we will both be convicted by the words of the psalm and encouraged by them as well. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful to you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We're grateful for all that you do and have done for us. Just as we have seen today, we are grateful for what you have done in the past by establishing your son Jesus to be our Savior. We're grateful that Christ came, suffered and died a vicarious death in our place so that we might receive all that you have blessed him with and that we, it, his blessings become ours. We're grateful for the sending of your Holy Spirit to bring us to conviction and understanding of that. And it is my prayer right now, if there is anyone in this room right now, those who may be listening online, those who will come across this sermon later at some point in the future, that your Holy Spirit will use these, these words of mine, but more importantly, use the Spirit that, and the words that you have authored to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to come that you would not only bring conviction, but that their hearts might melt before you with a reverent response to confess you as Lord and Savior. My prayer that you would also use these words to encourage our hearts to continue to fight the good fight, to continue to live a life of obedience and commitment and faith in you. My prayer is, is that as a result of that, you would be exalted in all things. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.